Hello and welcome to The Case for Hero and Leander, Episode 7 of Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast exploring the mysterious disappearance of Christopher Marlowe, the famed Elizabethan playwright, poet, and possible intelligence agent in Queen Elizabeth's secret network of spies. Although history reports that Marlowe died in a tavern brawl in Datford on the 30th of May, 1593, there is mounting evidence that his death was faked and that he escaped Datford with the assistance of that same secret network. I'm Julian Ng, the writer and composer of Kit, the musical, and joining me to investigate this remarkable tale and the evidence supporting the claim that Marlowe survived is Peter Hodges, playwright director and author of Marlowe's Complaint, the new book exploring this issue. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here again. Peter, you've been making the case that George Chapman is the anonymous rival that Christopher Marlowe attacked in his dangerous, undated and unsigned letter. We both agree that this letter is really what are known today as the rival poet sonnets, which were published as Shakespeare's sonnets, numbers 78 to 92. You believe that the sonnets were communications from Marlowe to his patrons and protectors, for example, Sir Thomas Walsingham and his wife, Lady Audrey. You have also said that Marlowe was angry because Chapman appropriated his poem, Hero and Leander, in 1598 by adding another 1,600 lines. On top of that, those lines attacked Marlowe's version of the story. This is why you believe that Marlowe's letter should actually be dated 1598. But how do you know that Marlowe really was attacking Chapman because of that? After all, Chapman had a long career. He wrote many other poems and plays, and some of them were also quite controversial. Marlowe, or even someone else, could have attacked him for something he wrote 10 years later in 1608. What reasons can you give for identifying the 1598 version of Hero and Leander as the subject for Marlowe's attack on Chapman? So that is a very good question, Julian. And once again, the answer is going to be found within the letter itself. The same way that we were able to find five specific clues that referenced George Chapman Clues which together identified him and eliminated any other suspects, we will be able to find similarly specific clues to Hero and Leander. In fact, I think we can find more than five specific references. <clears throat> I think we can find six. Oh, six? I mean, I would have been willing to bet that you would claim maybe three or four, but six. That is really going to be quite a claim. Well, let's look at the evidence. 
And again, bear in mind, now we're going to be looking at the poems themselves and what they say. And we're looking at them for clues to tell us what they're talking about. So stick with me. I'm going to dig into Hero and Leander. Now, the first really strong link to Hero and Leander in Marlowe's letter, it's actually several clues, but we can count them all as one because in each case, Marlowe uses the word spirit to refer both to himself and to this rival, Chapman. The first time he does this, he says, I faint when I of you do write, knowing a better spirit doth use your name. And a little later, he asks, <clears throat> was it his spirit by spirits taught to write above a mortal pitch that struck me dead? No, neither he nor his compeers by night, giving him aid my verse astonished. The use of spirit is not just metaphoric. It actually refers to a couple of things that Chapman wrote in his version of Hero and Leander. The first of these appears in his dedication of his additions to Audrey Walsingham, where he asserts that his motivation for the poem was because he was, quote, drawn by strange instigation to employ some of my serious time in so trifling a subject. So the first thing you know is that false modesty is literally a signature for Chapman. But the second thing is that strange instigation can be taken a number of ways, and one of them is spiritual intervention. Perhaps you might have a point there, but I think it could also be taken a number of other ways. It could be a polite way of saying that he was commissioned to write additions to Marlowe's poem. I mean, I think that would make sense because many people believed that Marlowe's poem was unfinished. And that is why it wasn't published until after Chapman had finished it. Well, it's not as if both things can't be true at the same time. Maybe Chapman was commissioned. Maybe Marlowe knew that. Maybe that's another reason why he was so upset. The idea that Chapman was commissioned to finish this poem, regardless of whether Marlowe thought it was unfinished at all, that could easily set him off. And if he thought that meant that he was about to be replaced, that would really scare him. Okay, but you still haven't made the connection with spirits. I mean, strange inspiration could mean that, but I don't think it's enough in my view. No, I agree. By itself, it's not. But there is other evidence which can be taken in context. And again, we're looking at clues. After the dedication to Lady Walsingham, Chapman returns to this idea of spiritual inspiration at the beginning of his editions. And he's more specific. Now, I have to warn you, I'm going to read from Chapman's editions. And in my opinion, Chapman is about as different from Marlowe as dogs are from cats. Where Marlowe is direct, amusing, and graceful, Chapman is long-winded, tedious, and clumsy. 
The portion I'm going to read to you is from the beginning of Chapman's additions to Marlowe's poem. But Chapman's beginnings are endless, so I'm going to summarize part of it. Because before he begins, Chapman has to rehash the last part of Marlowe's poem, as if you haven't even read it for yourself. The last part of Marlowe's poem depicts Hero and Leander's first night of love. For Marlowe, it's all very amusing, these two naive youngsters fumbling their attempts at lovemaking with their innocent beauty, constantly being thwarted by their inexperience and unfamiliar lust, overcoming childlike modesty and ending with a night of blissful sleep. <laughs> that sounds like a good place to end a poem about young lovers. No, nah, but not for Chapman. He doesn't think premarital sex is, in, is amusing. Not only does he retell the story to make the lovers seem reckless and foolish, which is bad enough, he actually says, now I'm going to tell you about the morning after, which in his mind is all pain and suffering, which is what his two-thirds of the finished product is all about, pain and suffering. You can imagine what Marlowe thought of that. Assuming he was alive. So, right. So, after all the preliminaries, Chapman sticks in one more preliminary to explain where he gets the gall to do what he's about to do. So, here we go. And I apologize in advance for the interpretation. The next night's horror which prepare to hear, I fail if it profane your daintiest ear. Then, how most strangely intellectual fire that proper to my soul has power to inspire her burning faculties, and with the wings of thy unsphered flame visitest the springs of spirits immortal. Now, as swift as time doth follow motion, find the eternal climb of his free soul, whose living subject stood up to the chin in the pyre can flood. And drunk to me, half this Musean story, inscribing it to deathless memory. Confer with it, and make my pledge as deep, that neither's draft be consecrate to sleep. So, he talks about spirits. What Chapman is trying to say is that he was inspired by spirits immortal, to write the second part of Musaeus' original story so that neither his nor Marlowe's first part would be lost. So when Marlowe makes the crack about spirits, teaching Chapman spirits to write, he's talking about this part of Chapman's additions to Hero and Leander. Plenty of other people have noticed this. They don't know what to make of it, but they know it's there. One of Marlowe's best biographers, John Bakeless, said that it seemed as if Chapman was apologizing or trying to explain why he decided to add 1,559 lines to Marlowe's original 764 instead of writing his own version. And by the way, the reference to Musaeus, the Greek poet who wrote the original version of Hero and Leander, this is echoed by Marlowe as well. He calls him that affable, familiar ghost. Chapman, in his dedication to 
Lady Walsingham, calls him Divine Musaeus. The difference between the two authors is right there. For Marlowe, Musaeus is a friend. For Chapman, he's an abstraction. That phrase, affable, familiar ghost. It's another reason why we know that Marlowe is referring to Hero and Leander and not some other poem. There are actually three poets in this mashup because Musaeus wrote the original poem that both Marlowe and Chapman based their poems upon. And Marlowe is claiming that he knows Musaeus better than Chapman. There's no other writer, no other possible rival poet, not any of the poets we talked about before, who makes a specific reference to Musaeus. Chapman is the only one who does that, and Marlowe makes it clear that he's talking about Chapman when he asserts superior familiarity with that affable ghost. That's your first two links. Ah, wait a minute. Chapman's references to Musaeus, spirits, and inspiration are echoed in Marlowe's letter. So for me, that's all one link. Where do you get the second? Musaeus is number two. All the huh. other references to spirits, including Chapman's spirit, being taught to write by other spirits, the better spirit using Audrey's name, which is a reference to Chapman by Marlowe, all of that is reference number one. That's clue number one. Musaeus is specific. Both Marlowe and Chapman refer to him separately, so he has to be treated as a separate clue. And if you think about it, Chapman's spirit would be one. The plural spirits, who could be Homer, Ovid, any other number of poets that are dead, even Marlowe, that would be number two, spirits, and then Musaeus becomes number three. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll give you two. I think three is definitely a push. And you say there are four more? <laughs> well, come on then. <laughs> well, okay. The third, the, third, the third clue has nothing to do with spirits, thankfully. There's, remember, there's that remark that every alien pen hath got my use. Now, that remark, that's actually in the plural. And Hero and Leander was appropriated not once, but twice. Chapman's was the second. You recall, I mentioned a version that was published by a man named Henry Petto. It didn't sell very well. Well, this is very specific. Not only was an alien pen publishing his work under Marlowe's name, there were actually two alien pens, and Marlowe's remark applies to both of them. And both of them did it with their versions, separate versions of Hero and Leander. On top of which, Hero and Leander is the only poem that Chapman published as a joint composition with another writer. You've, you've already agreed that Chapman was the rival poet. So this is the only poem that fits the category that includes Chapman. So that is two more clues, two more links, numbers three and four. 
the third being the reference to every alien pen, including Petto, and the fourth being the fact that Hero and Leander is Chapman's only joint composition. Well, hold on a minute. As I recall, there are a number of scholars who credit Chapman as co-author of several plays. Yeah, right. But in each case, Chapman is either credited as sole author or he's not credited at all. So the scholars are just guessing. Hero and Leander is the only poem or play where Chapman is formally credited on the title page as a co-author. So now we come to the fifth link. And it's in the dedication again to Hero and Leander. And again, here is Chapman. This poor dedication in figure of the other unity betwixt Sir Thomas and yourself, hath rejoined you with him, my best honored friend. Now he's addressing Lady Walsingham, and he's literally claiming that his additions to Marlowe's poem, figure, they are a figure or a reflection of the marriage between Sir Thomas and Audrey. And Marlowe satirizes this in the first four lines of Sonnet 82. He says, I grant thou wert not married to my muse, and therefore without a taint or look the dedicated words which writers use of their fair subject, blessing every book. So Marlowe is referring directly to Chapman's dedication of Hero and Leander to Audrey agreeing that because she is not married to his muse, she can accept the dedications of other poets. This is a very specific reference amid a series of specific references, not just to the poem Hero and Leander, but to the dedication of that poem as well. Now that's something you won't find in any other poem by Chapman. So that's five. And that... The sixth is the fact that the only poems Marlowe mentions in his letter are the poems that Chapman had written by 1598. As you say, Chapman went on to write many more poems and plays, many more than he had written up to that point. Marlowe might well have mentioned those if he'd wanted to, if he'd been writing later than 1598. But in 1598... Those were the only ones he could mention, the ones about hymns, the Iliad, and, and, and Ovid's Banquet of Sense, and he mentioned them all. So that makes it another very specific clue to a very specific date, 1598. Uh, I don't like to admit it, but it does make a lot of sense. Chapman did write a lot, but as you said, most of it was well after 1598. So, again, these are the clues in Marlowe's letter that caused Mento and Furnival and Keegan and many other scholars to identify not just Chapman, but Hero and Leander as the subjects of Marlowe's letter. They go hand in hand. And as I said before, there's really no one else that fits this neither with any of the other poems they wrote that might include nautical themes or hymns or songs, or nor with any references to ghostly inspiration. Again, you have to have 
all of these things together in one place, not one here and one there and someone with three and someone with what no that has to be all of this and it's all there with chapman and hero and leander yes i would say that all sounds very plausible i would say that george chapman is the most likely candidate for the title of rival poet and that hero and leander is almost certainly the poem in question but now we come to the final hurdle which is identifying the author of the sonnets you describe as this dangerous letter. I mean, I think most scholars would swear on their life that William Shakespeare wrote this letter and then titled them sonnets 78 to 92 in his collection. But you, however, you go against the grain and say that the true author was actually Christopher Marlowe. Obviously, that challenges at least 400 years of scholarship and history. I really think you might want to quit while you're ahead, Peter, because are you sure you really want to take on the establishment and, you know, all the people who are really going to come down on you like a ton of bricks to be able to explain to them how it is you can actually swear on your side that it is Christopher Marlowe who wrote these dangerous poems. Well, I think I can do it. And I will do it the same way I identified Chapman and Hero and Leander, by showing you the exact clues where Marlowe identifies himself in his own letter. <laughs> well, you know, I certainly can't wait for our final episode because we don't have enough time to hang on to all of that this time around. Be sure to tune in next time when Peter and I will attempt to discover the ultimate solution to the mystery of Christopher Marlowe's disappearance in the final episode of Hidden in Plain Sight. you who want to jump ahead will want to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book this podcast is based on. It's a fun read. I can recommend it, of course, but then I wrote it. <laughs>